from the Psych Hub Podcast Network. Join Marjorie Morrison and Patrick Kennedy on this episode of Future of Mental Health. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show, The Future Mental Health. I'm so excited today to have Dr. Stephen E. Hyman with us. When you hear his background and his bio, you will be as blown away as I am and so excited for this conversation. He is the Core Institute member and the director of the Stanley Center for Psychiatric Research. Dr. Stephen E. Hyman is a distinguished service professor and Harold McPike Professor of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology at Harvard University and a core institute member of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, where he directs the Stanley Center for Psychiatric Research. From 2001 to 2011, Dr. Hyman served as provost, chief academic officer of Harvard University, and from 1996 to 2001, as director of the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, which is a component of the National Institute of Health. From 2002 to 2016, he served as editor of the Annual Review of Neuroscience. From 2018 to 2013, he was the founding president of the International Neuroethics Society. In 2015, he was the president of the Society for Neuroscience. And in 2018, he was the president of the American College for Neuropsychopharmacology. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and a member of the National Academy of Medicine. He chairs the board of directors of the Charles A. Dana Foundation in New York. And if that's not enough, he received his BA, summa cum laude, from Yale College. He got his MA from the University of Cambridge, where he attended as a Mellon Fellow, and his MD cum laude from Harvard Medical School. Wow, Dr. Hyman, are we excited and honored to have this conversation with you today. Well, it's great to have an opportunity to talk about mental health issues. When I just think about what we've, mental health, I've been in this for decades, like you, it's a crazy time, isn't it? To think about all of the focus on mental health now compared to in the past. It is. There's a wonderful aspect to it in that people are talking about it. People are more open. It's in the press. There are lots of discussions, podcasts. But by the same token, it's coupled with a real problem in the United States, but not only in the United States, which is there aren't enough services or services that people can access and afford. And so in these conversations, one of the messages is, you know, if you're feeling distressed, if you're feeling some kind of impairment because of these symptoms, please seek help, ideally good professional help. And then people find that they can't. In many parts of the country, you can't find a psychotherapist skilled in cognitive behavioral therapy who takes insurance, partly because in this long history of the marginalization of mental health its treaters also got marginalized and, you know, they're not compensated. They are not at the top of the pyramid of um, medical and psychological hierarchies. On the one hand, great that we're talking about it. On the other hand, we really as a country have to do more to improve access. 
It's so interesting. I I spent about a decade working with the military. And at that time, stigma was such an issue. Service members were not coming in to get help. And I had an opportunity to kind of create a mandatory counseling program. Now, when I think about that same program that we worked so long at, you know, building and so much went into it, now it's actually a problem because all these providers are doing this mandatory counseling program and there's not enough for the ones to meet the demand that need it. Right. So that's how much things have changed in a decade. Yes. Whereas now it's almost like stigma's gone. Well, I wish I wish stigma were gone. Stigma is not gone. If we didn't stigmatize and marginalize people with severe mental illness, I don't think we would see the kind of homelessness among people with psychotic disorders or the fact that rather than having a humane and habitable place where they can have respite and treatment, we incarcerate them. So, you know, so it is true that among people who, who have the opportunity, there is this largely destigmatized conversation, but it's deeply ingrained and problematic. And in severe mental illness, even more so. Even more so. One of the things, you know, as people could tell from your reading of my background or could imagine, I've been involved in, among many other things, trying to understand the the biology of the brain that underlies mental illness. And let me just say this in no way denigrates the psychological or environmental experience it has to be recorded somewhere. And it happens to be that it's recorded in our brains. And for some people whose vulnerability we're trying to understand, it can be harmful and can, in the right circumstances, inputs from therapists, family can be helpful. But I don't want to get off on that tangent. I've been working very hard with colleagues to understand what goes wrong in the brain for somebody to have schizophrenia, right? for somebody to start to have cognitive loss in their teens and then develop psychotic symptoms. And unfortunately, we're not yet at a place where the knowledge we have can be turned into new treatments. But there is no question that schizophrenia, autism, the severe kinds of autism that come with new genetic mutations, especially bipolar disorder, are diseases that are embedded in the brain. And there was this hope that that would be destigmatizing because you can't really, I mean, people do a lot of things, but it's, I think people understand that you can't blame somebody because they have schizophrenia. And as the unfortunate era of American psychoanalysis passed, where, you know, we had this idea of schizophrenogenic mm-hmm. mothers, we can no longer blame the family. And we thought, well, stigma would sort of evaporate, but actually not. People with these terrible illnesses appear different. And the biological explanations and the discovery of genes, not just explanations, actual genes are being discovered, has often been interpreted fatalistically as hopeless. Uh, you know, if this is biologically ingrained, maybe this person can never get better, which is anything but true. But stigma, just it's a shapeshifter. And so we've gone from moralizing blame, which still actually touches oh. on people with depression and anxiety and eating disorders and so forth, to a new form of stigma, which is to become very uh, fatalistic and uh, and negative about the prognoses of people with severe mental illness. So I think what's going to really, in the end, be destigmatizing is really good treatment. 
treatment that makes people well, maybe we can hope one day for cures. We can also hope one day for prevention. Treatment that makes people well. And the reason I say that is if we look at HIV, it was so stigmatized in the 1980s and 90s. It was a death sentence. People would refuse to touch a doorknob that had been touched by somebody who was in a risk group. We haven't cured it yet, and there are still new cases, even in the United States, but it is not a death sentence. It is a severe but preventable and treatable chronic disease, and that's made a huge difference. People are not put out into another room if it's thought that they might be carrying HIV, which, of course, we knew never was spread by casual contact. And we're seeing the same thing again now with monkeypox, right? I think that for deeply ingrained forms of stigma, really good treatment. You know, if the people with risk of schizophrenia, if we could intervene in their teens and they did not become cognitively somewhat impaired, if they did not develop treatment refractory psychosis, which happens down the road for a lot of people, and they were able to take care of themselves. I think that would be the biggest thing, besides all of the other benefits of treatment. So I'm curious, like, how does it work when we know, because I think it's fascinating to think about the brain and that these are things that we are able to kind of, it sounds like, see in genes. At what point does that happen? Is that something that happens just in utero? Is it, do we know? Yeah, well, we don't fully know. But the first thing to be said is that whether for depression or anxiety or different eating disorders or what we call schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and I threw in that what we call because nature and people who are affected have not read the DSM. Good point. It doesn't really capture what's actually going on with people. For these conditions, the genetic risk is not a gene for. It's not like there is one gene of giant effect that makes somebody have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or major depression or anxiety or be an unlikable person. Or The genetics rather is described as complex or polygenic which is that there are many, many genes that build our brain. In fact, we only have 20,000 genes and they get repurposed. So among these 20,000 or so genes that are building our brain, we have had over the course of human evolutionary history, a couple hundred thousand years, and that we have 3 billion base pairs of DNA and errors happen. It's actually, the DNA replication is pretty good, but in every new human, there are 50 or 60 small changes typically, usually not even noticeable in their genetic sequence. And these little changes can add up to a greater risk of depression or less risk of depression. Fascinating. Other ones, you know, give me my unfortunate sinuses, which have bothered me since childhood. Others do good things, right? They, you know, they might help you academically in some way. But these are hundreds or thousands of little tweaks that add up in certain ways. And, and the other thing we've learned is that some of the genes that in an unfortunate combination might give somebody obsessive compulsive disorder or anorexia nervosa 
also contribute to some good things. So, so these genetic risks are not all deficit. So both at the level of life behavior, but also at the level of their genomes, people with obsessive compulsive disorder have often increased cognitive ability or increased school performance, partly because of discipline and sitzfleisch and what have you. And we're starting to decode these, these, all these myriad differences. And what happens? Well, we, you, you have your genes from your parents on, on your chromosomes, and they get shuffled when you're making gametes to make new baby. And that random shuffling of the deck is what gives us our individuality. It gives us our individual strengths. Again, now I'm not being deterministic here. It's an unfortunate shorthand, right? Because mostly what they're giving us is we will respond to certain environments, certain developmental experiences that will leave us impervious to depression or liable to depression. The deck is shuffled. You have your genes and then your development and your environment will will tweak things further and further. But in the end, then the brain is uh, developed in a way that makes you very vulnerable to depression or some people invulnerable to depression or any one of these mental health traits. And what we're trying to do from the genes is understand how the brain is built. Those, these are the clues, the only clues we're ever going to have because we don't, we can't do like brain biopsies in life. And imaging is lovely, but it's it's uh, just doesn't have the resolution. We can see millions of cells at once, but not individual cells. So we're trying to understand how these, how our genes can make us liable to the to bad things, things we call disease or disability, and then using that understanding of mechanism how we can devise new treatments instead of guessing the way we have. It's so fascinating to even think about it like the way you described it, because then you can also really understand the heredity component. So, right, if it's like two sets of genes, then over time, whatever's in those legacy of those two individuals coming together to form the baby, it's that loading deck too. Right, they're shuffled, so... Again, it's not it's it's not determined, right? Right. It's not like, well, my mom, you know, had this, and so I'm gonna have that. I mean, it does get shuffled and they're new combinations, but some unfortunate people in the shuffling of these decks have just high loading for risk of schizophrenia or some physical trait, good traits, bad traits. But again, these things may or may not come to fruition depending on person's development how their brain is so let's talk about that for a minute too and i know i'm asking hard questions that no one has these answers for so going to that then kind of nature nurture question so if it's you know predetermined are there certain things in someone's life that would trigger something you know often we treat these things as if we're in in a game of billiards you know you hit this ball and it's the right right and that ball goes off in the right direction. This is much more statistical. Let's say there are a thousand little tweaks in our genome who are who make somebody more liable to have depression in the context of certain life experiences or to become dependent on alcohol. I like the, the alcohol example because it's not clear that there's anything at all wrong with that person until they have the unfortunate life accident of meeting up with alcohol. 
and having friends who cause them to drink too much. And then they find they're trapped. And that their genes have a lot to say about that. But nature nurture almost sounds like there are two separate individual forces, sometimes opposed, sometimes aligned in the same direction. Both our genes and the effective environment for our brain development and our early life and what we come across in life is just much more complex. And these engagements between our genomes and our brains and, and the world are much more stochastic. We tend, to, as human beings, to have many cognitive, you know, for this purpose, what I would call them cognitive foibles. We, we try to essentialize it. It's his genes that did it to him. You know, it's, it's not me, it's my genes. Nature versus nurture, just to, to, to simplify things. And we're not good statistical thinkers either when we say something as a chance occurrence and so forth. But I think that's how we really do have to understand mental illness. Yeah, it ties into what you were saying earlier too about the stigma and that the ability to know that if there's good treatments, you can get good outcomes. And so therefore it isn't all predetermined based off that. So I would love to hear your thoughts about earlier intervention. Like you mentioned, you know, before somebody has a potentially like a psychotic break, how is that happening today? And then how do you, how do you hope it will happen in the future? It's interesting. It's long been known that before somebody has full-blown diagnosable schizophrenia, very often there's something that used to be called the prodrome and is now often called the clinical high-risk state, where a young person in their teens will start to have cognitive difficulties. What, What do you see? A kid is not doing as well in school. Well, there are a lot more common reasons for a kid not doing well in school than that this is the beginnings of schizophrenia, but it's not just that, right? They will sort of uh, give, often give up their social engagements, their friends, and, and then start to have what are called sometimes, big words, but attenuated psychotic symptoms. They think they hear voices. They begin to think they're hearing or seeing or experiencing things that other people don't have. Identifying individuals at that stage and give and and even supporting them giving them the right kinds of psychotherapies because there's no medical treatment you can give them but making sure there aren't other medical things going on or other treatable psychiatric disorders going on preliminarily looks like it it could attenuate or delay this conversion to psychosis that's optimal but in the US and I know you've spoken to Tom Insel this is something he has really made front and center, often somebody is actively psychotic, diagnosably schizophrenic, for more than a year before the modal patient actually has a diagnosis and treatment. Wow. Now, I'll just make one one really important thing about early diagnosis, even though we don't have any magic bullets and waiting for a year, is in, in that period between an early diagnosis might be in mid to late teens, of the high-risk state, not of schizophrenia, and a failure to diagnose schizophrenia when it occurs when somebody is 19 or 22 or 23 can be the difference between that person finishing school, getting their first job and having some success. I mean, they're already having some cognitive trouble. Finding a partner in life and forming a stable bond, such as marriage. 
those life-stabilizing achievements portend a much better long-term outcome. If somebody, in contrast, has unrecognized, untreated psychosis, oh, they, they, they get into a world of trouble. They can look like a terrible nuisance or a vagrant or criminal, right, and end up, instead of finishing high school or college, they can end up finishing a six-month sentence and then with unrecognized symptoms and then being sent out to the street again. So even without having really, again, no magic bullets, we can't, we don't know how to stop schizophrenia in its tracks, but we can make a huge difference in people's lives. And this really has to do, again, with caring about these people, not stigmatizing them, not blaming them or their families, making sure that I realize family doctors are asked to do everything and they're undercompensated and they have no time. But just even training people into, gee, this is worrisome. Let's see if I can get a, you know, a second opinion or a consultation. It's so interesting. So I have this memory that as I'm listening to you, that's like triggering it. I had a childhood best friend who had a full psychotic break and is schizophrenic, unfortunately. But she had around 13, and I guess we would say an eating disorder where she would only eat certain foods. There was like three or four foods. And I just remember, and it would be like, it was, I remember these like sesame candies that they sold at the grocery store. And that was like one of the few things that she would eat. And so when you say this, I think to myself, her behavior in some ways was so unusual, but, you know, probably never got picked up. Without getting in too much into the weeds, the reason why people want to call something the clinical high-risk state instead of a schizophrenia prodrome is she could have very well turned out to have an eating disorder as her major problem in life or bipolar disorder. See, these things look very polymorphous. And one thing I hadn't said before, but I should throw in now to make things more complicated, is many forms of mental illness share risk genes. So between bipolar and schizophrenia, there's about 65 to 70% sharing of risk genes. And lots of people, this is why the DSM is so, uh, so off. Lots of people have well, symptoms of both, and we give it a made-up name, schizoaffective disorder. But one of the things we've got to do is do better in figuring out you have let's not name it, this sort of condition and the best treatment for that will be X or Y. You know, the example is cancer. We used to talk about breast cancer or lung cancer as if it was one thing. And now we know uh, what really matters is not just the tissue of origin, but what precise mutations are causing that cancer. And a lot of modern treatments are targeting the gene products of those mutations that have led to the cancer. Mental illness is going to be yet more complicated, but it's the same kind of idea. Right. Patrick Kennedy and I started Psych Hub with this. The whole thesis is to move behavioral health providers from generalists to specialists, helping them get educated into these evidence-based interventions to treat the, you know, the different symptoms or diagnoses better because I'm a master's level mental health provider. There's 75% of the mental health workforce, our master's level, we're not taught any of this stuff in school. We're taught like theory. And so you're, I, and I use that cancer analogy a lot. Well, I also say like, you wouldn't go see a cardiologist for a broken foot, 
but you also wouldn't treat lung cancer with the same chemotherapy potentially as a leukemia or breast cancer. Well, you wouldn't even treat all, right? The world now knows about triple negative, right? Uh, breast cancer with a worse prognosis or, or Herceptin as a treatment. Those are discussions of matching treatments to genetics of the tumor. We're not there, but, but the diseases are yet more complicated. You know, we could be fortunate and what we know now might lead rationally to some better treatments in a decade or so. But at least, at least genetics has given us some traction on these conditions. And again, it doesn't reduce everything to genes. It's a way in, it's a finding point because the genes determine the precise amount of certain proteins in your brain and where they're made and, you know, eventually brain structure and so forth. So it gives us a clue to mechanism. And rational treatment development across all medicine is based on, again, it's like lung cancer. It's not, that, well, this person has a tumor in their lung. It's, it's what is the mechanism, what is it that we can address and, and target and fix in this person's cancer? And we hope ultimately to do the same thing in mental health disorders, but I don't want to create a picture of hopelessness based on brain complexity. I think we are making good progress, and there's no reason to think that we won't along this path before, long before we reach full understanding that there will be much better treatments. And the other thing is we don't implement well what we know. I was just talking about psychosis in the United States. We could actually do a lot better by people if we did what we know is right, but we know. What stops that? I know we, we talk about this all the time too. Is it just that it from where it comes out of research and in academia to actually get into the field? No, no, it's, I mean, we've mentioned eating disorders a, a few times. The treatments we have now that make a difference are very much behavioral. You want to have privileges. You want to be able to go out. You have to weigh a certain amount, and we're going to weigh you, and you can't look at the scale. And I think the insurance companies often treat this stuff punitively, as if it's not real. Very, very difficult for I mean, eating disorders are, are preponderantly women, although they're growing among young men as well. So part of it is just, this is the area of medicine where the insurance companies, I think, feel most empowered to underfund and not pay because, again, stigma, marginalization of mental illness, of mental illness providers, of mental health treatments. You know, imagine paying for an inpatient stay that's really about behavioral treatment and group therapies of somebody's weight. They can get away with not paying, even though anorexia nervosa has about the highest lethality rate of almost any long term over a lifetime of almost any mental health disorder. So part of it is just money and where people can get away with underfunding. But part of it is the working out of stigma over time. Now, you know, you can say I'm prejudiced, I'm an advocate, but when I looked at the budget for NIMH when I was the director in the 1990s, compared to other conditions that were, I never want to get into a fight over, you know, uh, 
whose disease is worse than. But if you just look at measures, objective measures for policymakers, it's something called disability adjusted life years. It's for any condition, it's the number of healthy years of life lost to disability plus years of life lost, that is premature mortality. And based on dollars per dally, that sounds so funny, but basically research investment per against this measure of societal damage, mental health was very much underfunded and other things just did much better because there was greater societal sympathy, greater fear. So there's that, but these things add up. So why don't we have enough psychotherapists who are well-trained and can do CBT and why aren't they compensated enough by insurance so that they are available to pe- to just ordinary people with ordinary insurance? It's just this picture of sweeping mental health disorders, its practitioners, its sufferers under the rug, out of sight. Not We can get away with it. They're stigmatized. I was in Dubai last week. I was speaking at two different conferences and the audience was primarily Arab from UAE, from Saudi, from Beiran. And I come from also the lens of it's such a broken system and, you know, it's just, it's, it's been, you know, separated from physical health. I was really shocked spending so much time with that population, how severe stigma is there. I mean, it is like the, they just, it's a whole different culture and to just compound that once you are ready to go get help, there are no resources included in any of your benefits. So it's not like here, okay, you might have some, it's hard to find. It's hard to find one that's using evidence-based practice, one that takes your insurance, all of this. They're, they don't barely have any. And then you almost have to have money. You have to ha- be of some wealth to be able to afford it. And then the interesting thing is like with suicide is we're having this kind of suicidal epidemic here there it's really considered a sin. And so it doesn't happen. And if it does, nobody would ever know. So it's just, it's also so interesting when we think about we're all humans, we all have brains, they're not the same, but we all have brains. And yet we, I'm curious your thoughts of this, we're probably leading the way on the US in this development compared to these other countries. We're better off than some, that's for sure. And I think what you're describing is an extreme example of the evils that stigma can work, but it's cross-cultural. You know, I've, I've been involved in many global mental health efforts and, again, you know, in the past worked closely with the World Health Organization. The stigmatizing and othering of people who are behaviorally different is, seems to be pretty universal. Partly, I think people are, uh, in some cases, frightened of the people with mental illnesses, certain mental illnesses. But I think the other thing is they, because these are disorders where you don't see the stigmata, right? There's no, you know, it's not a broken leg. And sadly, diagnosis is not yet based on any objective measures. In a way, people think it's not real. That if, I mean, somewhere a lot of people must think, that if you have depression, you're just not trying hard enough, you're not praying hard enough. If you're if you're anxious, you know, right. suck it up. People don't say that about cancer. They use, cancer was stigmatized, right, in, in the past. Somehow, because these 
are invisible disabilities, invisible causes of suffering, potentially frightening and in every family. I think we have tended to try to put them out of our minds and not spend resources on them and, and find blame because why did it happen to that person? Well, they, they or their ancestors must have done something bad. This is why I'm all in favor of public interest campaigns focused on destigmatizing, on explaining, all of that stuff. But this is why I go back to the fact that what we really need are really good treatments so that people get better or at least don't get so sick. And then, then we have a fighting chance. And I say a fighting chance because clearly we, don't, we can't treat everyone with, with um, severe depression. We have pretty good, you know, the combination of a generic SSRI, Prozac-like drug, and cognitive behavioral therapy or some other short-term psychotherapy is pretty good. And you can present the data to policymakers around the world and they they oh yeah, it's very convincing and they do nothing. And you just have to, uh, I mean, that's a little bit of a flip statement, but my, but it is frustrating. And, uh, and I think it's because they must just not think it, they must think that the patients are not deserving something. So yes, the science is hard. We will one day have really good treatments, but we may, I hope, I hope in the next years we'll have better treatments than we have today. But there's still such a gap between what we already have. Again, off-patent, cost-effective generic medications and really pretty good psychotherapies for a lot of things that don't get implemented, even in the United States. I wonder a lot of times if we just don't do a good enough job at sort of presenting the ROI, right? Of like to invest in it early, we save so much money down the road. And I, we know that treated mental health, when it's, when it's effectively treated, there's a much lower total cost of care savings, right? That yeah. people end up yeah. out of that. But yet I, I sometimes wonder if that's the problem is that, you know, we can almost look at a cancer case and say, if you pick it up at stage one, the cost of treatment is going to be X compared to stage four. So therefore it's worth getting everybody a mammogram or a colonoscopy or something. I wish it were that that would work. I mean, I've been in many such conversations and, you know, I was in the U S government where, you know, we made these points and, and I, I was, uh, I testified for the first parity bill that passed but sunsetted Domenici Wellstone and sat in in the Department of Health and Human Services as the regs were written. And everybody was aware of this ROI and everybody was aware that there were cost-effective treatments. But somehow between the clear economic discussions or the discussions of humane handling of terribly distressed people or kids who can't learn in school and destruction of human capital. That's a terrible term, but that's, you know, somehow there's just this slippage. I mean, besides better treatments, it means also to me that we need relentless advocacy. I mean, just relentless. Everybody has to express their internal Patrick Kennedy passion. (laughs) Right. Because... Um, the second you take your eye off it, even well-meaning people don't follow through. 
So before we wrap, I'd love to hear something, I want to say positive, but something in your time that you've been in this space, where have you seen advancement that's been hopeful and that gives you hope that we can continue to expand that in other things? Well, you know, I'm I'm a scientist and for reasons that I still can't fathom, very early in my career, uh, I became the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. I was recruited to do that. I was 43, did it for almost six years. And it was both wonderful to see the dedication of people. I formed lifelong engagements with patient advocates or groups like the National Alliance on Mental Illness, with whom I'm now robustly collaborating again on things. But the science was sort of heartbreaking. And it was heartbreaking because the brain is, it's just really hard. And even the genetics turn out to be this polygenic, it makes sense, right? This is not, brains are not like Gregor Mendel's peas, right? We don't turn out green or yellow, wrinkled or smooth. It's very complicated. We didn't have the technology. We didn't have the traction. And when I left, I was pretty much in despair. I mean, you read on my bio that I was provost of Harvard University. Well, why would I do that? I just didn't, I just felt that, that I wanted to do something for people suffering with these illnesses. And I didn't have, I could go back and do the basic, basic, basic science that I've been doing before. Didn't, I don't know, didn't excite me, didn't feel right. Uh, I didn't want to play act at science. While I was in this, magnificent timeout box, 10 years as provost, the necessary technologies emerged. And as, as I knew they, they would, it, you know, when I, from the, my time at NIH, you know, the genome project, you know, we, we could now actually manage to, to understand the genetics of these illnesses, the ability to make adult stem cells into neurons and glia, the very important support cells of the brain that do all kinds of things beyond support. We could begin to have those kinds of models. We had got genome engineering. And all of a sudden, sort of late in my career, uh, I got the opportunity to go back and uh, direct the Stanley Center, which had been uh, started by my predecessor there, Ed Skolnick, and a great Ted Stanley, a great and visionary philanthropist. And we and others are now able to make real progress. And it feels really great. I wish it was earlier in my life because, you know, I'd love to be able to see it through. But this isn't a false dawn. I mean, this is, we are now, we're behind where cancer biology is, but it's the same track. And so if we invest in it and we're getting the other thing that's happening, the best indicator that it's real is brilliant young people are entering the field and working on schizophrenia, which just never would have even five years ago, because you don't want to waste your career on something that's completely intractable. But now there's, it's a difficult problem, but there's traction. And that so excites me. It feels so rewarding. We, we'll get there. I wish it was faster because people are suffering and dying today. Of course, again, there's this gap between we know what we know and what we do that is unconscionable. But we do have to do better. I can't pretend that our antipsychotic drugs are 
you know, we wouldn't be without them, but they have terrible side effects. They don't treat the cognitive disability. We have to do better, but I think it will happen. And I, I, I wasn't sure of that at the time that I left NIMH. The science really hadn't been there. Wow, what an amazing champion you have been. I love that that just conversation about that you took that time out, you know, to go be provost. And and sometimes I think that's what life is too. It gives you some, actually to quote Patrick, he always tells me you need that white space, you know, to just kind of think mm-hmm. and, and to yeah. um, strategize and do things when you're running hard and going, going that, you, you know, you can't do. So it's amazing. And I I started this conversation not on, on when we were recording, that my dad was a psychiatrist and the things that you are working on, you know, were always so passionate for, for him. And, you know, just, he would, I think just, I know, I shouldn't say think, I know, be so grateful that there are people like you that wake up every day and continue to kind of beat the drum and continue to kind of trudge forward. Cause that's, that's what it takes. It is the long, it's the hardest problem. The great hope though is, is again, if your dad were alive, it could just be the young people who are now starting to enter this field. It would give a lot of hope because there are some really brilliant young scientists now working on schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. The first genetics of risk of anorexia nervosa have been discovered. And that's a really interesting, if we could formulate that into a lesson, because again, it's one of these, it's not clear that people with those genes would ever have anything wrong with them without certain environmental uh, exposure to very slim body images, or even now on the web, these pro-ana, pro-anorexia websites, or even frankly, what a lot of psychotherapists tell them that concretizes this. But just not anyone will fall into that abyss. You also need these, these risk genes And what's really interesting about some of these genes, they have to do with appetite and energy metabolism. So people who develop full-blown anorexia were probably thin their whole lives. It's It's so interesting. I think the earlier analogy that you gave too about alcoholism was just, it was so well articulated because, you know, you really helped me and helped our listeners think through that black and white, right? Which I, I lay, I laid you up for nature, nurture. And, you know, and it's just, it's so interesting to think about, yes, you can have, it's both. And and, and it's a tangled dance, right? I mean, we always think that to become an alcoholic, there must've been something terribly wrong with you. And you're trying to wash your bad feelings or your sins away, but it may very well be that if just as if, Women who have anorexia and now across the world have not come across certain body images. And uh, there's some, maybe they'd be fine. And same with alcohol. Maybe the future alcoholic, as it were, would have done fine. They just, unfortunately for them, humans have learned to ferment. I'm hopeful as like, I know they're doing with what is it that like kind of traumatic brain injury concussions, uh, CTI, is it CTI where they're doing mm-hmm. the post op, the op, CTE, 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 yeah. CTE. didn't quite sound yeah. right, but the, how they're doing the autopsies on the brain after death. It'll be interesting to see if we're able to sort of look at that for mental illness. Right. We just want markers as it will be for head injury. There's, there's actually a potential biomarker being studied called 
it's wonderful. It's abbreviated NFL of all things, neurofilament light chain, that uh, the levels of which after concussions and head injuries may predict certain outcomes. We need those kinds of biomarkers for you know, mental health disorders, partly to know how to match people with the right treatments. Partly, maybe we need to prove to insurance companies, right, that this person who's smiling at you is actually quite ill, under, right? And the whole spectrum, right? Because we have the, the severe mental illness side of it, but the other side of it, equally as important, is to kind of to take this full circle as we close is to let people know if they're struggling or suffering from depression, that there is hope and that there is treatment and that it's not always going to be that way. And I think that's kind of where you started, which is was a is a really beautiful outlook into this. And, and I think that's where I'm always so fascinated about resiliency too, but really giving people hope for them and then the people around them not to give up on them and not to give up on yourself that, you know, these things over time can change. And I think that that message is so important because it can feel so exacerbating if you're going through it and can feel so helpless. Absolutely. A lot to be done. (laughs) This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for taking your time out of your busy, busy life as you're making such a huge difference in the world for talking to all of us and really explaining things in in layman terms, in ways that we can understand it and then giving us hope and what what this could look like. I know, you know, Patrick unfortunately wasn't here, but he refers to as one of the smartest ones in the space that, uh, you know, really has the path of where, where we need to go. So I think we're all, we're all grateful that you're here and that you dedicate yourself to this important work. Well, you're very kind, but it's a pleasure to talk with you and to be in this conversation. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed the show, drop us a review. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast for the latest episode. For the latest insights, check us out at psychhub.com.